You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello and welcome to Justice is Served. This is the show where we give you all of the latest in legal news. I'm your host, Mari Fagel, joined by my lovely co-host, Chelsea Galicia. Thank you. Chelsea, you are back from a trip in Guatemala. I am, yes. And a lot of legal topics to discuss today, a lot of stories. I chose an interesting one as our case of the week. You know, we're going to get to uh, the Boston bomber verdict. He's guilty. That just came in. We're going to get to the Aaron Hernandez trial. Uh, a lot of topics to discuss. But first, I want to start with a case of the week that, to me, I think the crime, the punishment, excuse me, fit the crime. So that's why I want to ask you. 28-year-old man, his name is Kevin Ballart, he started the site You Got Posted. It's a revenge porn site. Revenge porn, Chelsea, is where ex-boyfriends or girlfriends, or girlfriends, but boyfriends, come on, yeah. let's be honest, who are terrible people, who are <laughs> pissed off at their ex-girlfriends for dumping them, end up posting on this man's site nude photos that their girlfriend sent them. Either want nude photos they took of their girlfriends or selfies that they sent to their boyfriends. They post these nude photos without these women's permission. And this is the guy who not only does he have a venue for these jilted lovers to post their ex's photos, he takes it one step farther. He runs another site called changemyreputation.com, where once these women realize that their naked photos are online for everyone to see with identifying information, their name, their location, what city they live in, their Facebook, their social media... The women will contact him or he'll email them and he'll say, hey, your photos are up. If you want to take it down, go to my second site, changemyreputation.com, and I'll charge you up to $350 to take those photos down. Well, guess what? The law caught up to him. There were more than 10,000 photos posted in a 10-month period. Thank God. They caught him. Thank and, God none of yours got up there. That's what I thought you were uh, about to say. Uh, I would never take nude photos in the first place. But I don't want to diminish what these women went through because I know a lot of them said they felt a lot of shaming and guilt like it was their fault for taking the nude photos. It's not their fault. It's this guy's fault. And what did this guy get? 18 years. You heard me right. 18, 18 years. years sentence for actually 21 felony counts he for counts of identity theft, excuse me, 21 felony counts of identity theft and six counts of extortion. Yes, it is extortion when you tell a woman, I'll charge you $350 to take your nude photos offline. So, Chelsea, my question is, is 18 years too much? This guy's 28 years old. He's now been being sentenced to 18 years, which 
he'll probably serve half of that. That's what I was going to say, is that it, it It sounds like a ginormous number, uh, especially because there are people who commit uh, I don't serious crimes who don't spend nearly as long in jail as he faces. Uh, but it was the first time that somebody has been convicted under the law uh, that he helped inspire to create. And so it's a, it's a warning to anybody else who's considering doing something else like it. Hopefully it will be a deterrent. Uh, it's, it's long. I actually think it might be too long. And I, 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 this is not to say that I am not, um, compassionate for what these women went through, but for us to lock him up for that long is a pretty penny. Uh, I, I think maybe he should never be allowed to touch a computer again or something. I don't know. How you regulate that. Of course, that, that couldn't be, really happen, but that's um, where my, my thought goes. The, it's just a lot for us to pay as citizens for him to be locked up for that long. Uh, he definitely deserves a massive punishment. I mean, that's a really heinous thing to do to people. I mean, one woman said she tried to commit suicide over this. Another woman was kicked out of her home by her parents once they saw the photos. Women yes. had to quit their but jobs. I, I can understand that those would happen, but I'm not sure he could be responsible for every last consequence of what people did. You know, there's intervening uh, forces. It's not a civil suit. We're not charging him with, you know, intentional infliction of emotional distress. This is a criminal suit. Well, they should. And I think some of the victims are in the midst of doing such a thing. Against their boyfriends. Uh, at the very least. Well, and also, he uh, was part of that. And I think they're going to... Um, ch- charge him with, you know, similar, similar crimes, but eight, 18 years. I mean, that's a whole, a, you know, childhood. Um, I, I think part of the reason why he got so long is that he did not show any remorse at all. Exactly. I think you're hitting the nail on the head as to why he got such a severe sentence for two reasons. You said one is deterrence. This is the first time someone who's run a revenge porn site has been prosecuted. He actually was not prosecuted under California's relatively new revenge porn law because that was after he was charged. So he was prosecuted under traditional crimes of identity theft and extortion. California's revenge porn law is actually a misdemeanor. So he just got shit end of the stick here because otherwise he would have been charged with a misdemeanor which future people will be charged with a misdemeanor under california's revenge porn law and that can be include the ex-boyfriends themselves for um posting these photos it's basically an extension of california's disorderly conduct law um but the second reason other than deterrence and saying hey we're taking this seriously is i think his attitude you said he showed no remorse and the judge even at his sentencing read a part of his transcript with the attorneys where they asked him why did you start this site it seemed like fun exactly he said i did it because i thought it was fun and this guy's sick he's sick and it wasn't like he wasn't on notice of this harm these women were emailing him as far back as a couple months before he started the site these women were saying you know what harm he was putting them through and he just said oh well pay me then yeah i don't think that the guys who gave him the photos should be held harmless i think they somebody should go after them the problem is i don't know under criminal law 
if there is an answer for that, but definitely civilly, there are several well, you- tort claims, intentional infliction of emotional distress, public disclosure of private fact. Um, they can even Can they go file- backwards and charge them with the new revenge porn law? That's the new revenge porn law. The problem with that to me is I think all of these laws that 17 states have um, now legislated and passed these revenge porn type laws. I think the problem is they're going to work their way up the system possibly to the Supreme Court for being too overbroad is what the defense is going to argue. That this is a free speech right and that they're chilling free speech. So this is a law that is brand new and I think it went into effect in um, October 2013 and actually the full effect of it isn't until this July because that was just for photos that um, that Somebody men took of women. Took. Selfies wasn't under this law. Selfies now will be under this law come July. So I think it's a whole new field but i agree like you're saying that the ex-boyfriend should be held accountable too right who's worse him or the ex-boyfriend who's sending him the photos mm, half a a dozen of one (laughs) yeah it's it's a tough call i was surprised that he actually didn't make all that much money from this he made only about thirty thousand dollars which is not a small chunk of change but i'm glad that he did not make more of course he's having to pay fines so he's not going to end up profiting from this failed venture uh in the end but in the meantime ladies think twice about the nude photos i I, there i assume that every photo i take everyone's gonna see it i agree but i also think that these women you know I felt so bad for them. First of all, there were 21 different women who testified. The prosecution flew them in from all over the country to testify. Eight of them then read statements at his sentencing. And they basically said when it first happened, they would go to the police, and the police would say to them, almost like, this is your fault. And it's not their fault. It was a private moment they shared with their ex-boyfriend. And, you know, should they have taken the photo? I'm sure they're thinking twice about that now. And I'm sure other women are thinking twice about that now. But to be so violated in such a public manner is horrendous. And that's why, you know, I think this deep sentence sends a message. I mean, already Twitter, Reddit, and Facebook have all come out and clarified their policies against posting nude photos of people without their permission. There's even now this new movement of social media prenuptial agreements where women and men will sign agreements that they won't release their photos of, you know, them nude without their permission if the marriage were to crumble. What has this world come to? (laughs) I don't know. That's a really great (laughs) question. But that could take all show, so maybe we should leave that one for another day. (laughs) Well, we'll definitely be following more of these revenge porn sites and ex-boyfriends and prosecution because we're going to see more of this. There's another case coming up with Hunter Moore, who's called the most hated man on the internet, so we will be following this in the future. In the meantime, I'm hoping that I don't accidentally take a picture that I'm going to be mortified if the whole world sees, but you know. All right. In other big news today, the uh, Boston bomber has now, well, he's now been declared guilty. So now it's official uh, that, uh, help me pronounce his name. So Harsarnaev. Thank you. Has just been found guilty just about an hour or two ago of all 30 felony counts. He and his brother uh, were the ones that created these bombs, and then they went off about 12 seconds apart from each other, killing three people at the site. Um, the brother killed a police officer days later, and then the brother himself was killed by this guy, 
it's a not well-known detail, but the the guy who was just convicted actually ran over his brother with a car during a police struggle. Uh, so that's why he was the only defendant uh, to stand trial. He's now been found guilty, and now the jury has to decide should he serve life in prison or the death penalty. What do you think? See, to me, there was no surprise that he was found guilty. I mean, people lost their lives, they lost limbs, limbs. they lost their livelihood. I think that uh, the prosecution, I think that this crime speaks for itself. The prosecution could have sat there and closed in an hour and they would have found this guy guilty. Um, But, you know, they put on a strong prosecution where they closed with um, the people who did the autopsies of the three people who died, including the little boy, explaining, showing their clothing to the jury, explaining exactly what injuries they suffered. I mean... This is a terrorist, and in my mind, it's no surprise that he was found guilty. The bigger question, like you said, is whether he will be sentenced to death or not. And I think we're actually going to agree on this because we talked about before the show, you know, we have certain feelings about the death penalty, but this isn't any ordinary case. I personally do think, especially in the state of California, that um, the death penalty should no longer exist for normal state crimes and i think the reason it should no longer exist is we're in this state of influx right now where all these people are sentenced to death but we're not actually executing anyone right so basically we spend all this money to house these death row inmates and the last time that someone was executed in california was in 2005 so it's either do it or don't do it. But this limbo in between, I think, is the worst possible outcome well, of have, both. But I do want to say, I don't want to cut you off, I just want to explain my reasoning here. I think that this is a terrorist and this is a different situation when it comes to the death penalty. Because, one, I think um, for budgetary concerns and reasons that the death penalty should be off the table in California. And, two, I think that, um, in my mind, it's a worse punishment to serve life in prison than to be sent to death in certain circumstances. But I don't feel that way here. Yeah, okay, so this the only difference that we have about the, the death penalty is that um, I am opposed to it because... I, I hate to make it sound like all about money, but it costs so much more for us as taxpayers to execute somebody because of all the layers of appeals that the cases have to go through in order to um, to stand f- uh, or to get the death penalty. That's one. The other is that now we're seeing so many cases of people who were on death row and now we're finding evidence that they were not guilty in the first place. So we have uh, and could potentially continue to, in this country, execute people who are innocent of the crimes that they have been convicted of, like we talked about last week, Glenn Ford, who spent 30 years in prison for a murder that he did not commit. And we discussed that because he had been denied um, any uh, restitution um, for the fact that he had spent so long uh, in prison for a crime that he did not commit. But in this case, the only reason why I would support um, him being put to death is because, and this was an interesting comment that I, I saw made, let's say 5, 10, I don't even know if it would take that long, for somebody in who sympathizes with him in another country abroad to capture an American soldier, journalist, whatever, and try and use... The, the release of Tsarnaev as a negotiating tool to release the American 
that they're holding captive. And in order to do away with that possibility, he would need to not be alive. Uh, I think it's an interesting argument, but the jury would never be explained that because now the second portion is whether the jury will decide whether he'll be sentenced to death or not. I don't think they're ever going to be explained that possible consequence of it, which they shouldn't be because it's the justice system and as the trier fact, it's for them to decide. And so uh, I, I don't think that we should be making these decisions based off of hypotheticals in the future. I think we should be making these decisions based off of how the justice system in this country works currently. Well, if we stick to the letter of the law now, I don't see how he would not be executed. I know he has a defense attorney with a long history of getting off very high-profile defendants. Um, and the Oklahoma get, City bomber. Right, and not getting them off as an acquittal, but getting them off from the death penalty because of some history of mental illness, a history of abuse, uh, something that makes the jury feel bad, in, a, in essence, for the defendant and that they don't end up wanting to execute him. And that's what she did here because her whole defense was the guy was going to be found guilty regardless. So she basically, her strategy in trial wasn't for this part of the case. It's for the next part of the case. Her strategy was that he was the vulnerable, impressionable younger brother and the older brother was the mastermind and he just did whatever his brother told him to do, which is trying to evoke some sort of sympathy on the part of the jurors to say he shouldn't be sentenced to death for that reason. So whether her strategy works or not, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know. When when the jury hears about his history, it will be, uh, you know, that he and his family emigrated to the United States. Um, they were granted asylum. They were supported by um, the Massachusetts government. They got, you know, a form of welfare and, you know, they uh, were welcomed and they were helped by the American people. And then he, tr- I, I, I don't know whether the attorney will say that back in his home country, he sustained some sort of trauma that was so bad that, um, made him easily radicalized. I'm not sure based on everything that I have seen that there's something that's going to come out that is going to evoke enough sympathy for this guy over the heinous um, crimes that he committed. Not, I mean, I mean, not just murdering strangers and a child. His own brother. I mean, he is really. I'm, I'm not sure. No, if his brother deserved to die, so I don't care. Well, that's about true. Him. <laughs> but, but that, that, but it goes to to show that you know, not only does he not care about strangers, which we all should, but most of us care more about our family members than strangers. He didn't even really care about his brother. He ran him over. Because they also, that's the other thing with executing them, is they want to be martyrs. Their goal is to send a message to this country. So if he's executed, he becomes a martyr. So it's like, give him what he wants. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I I heard that he was jealous of his brother because his brother is a martyr. I don't think you're a martyr when your own brother runs you over trying to kill the cops. I, I don't see that. But that's a, that's a good point. Maybe what he wants is, um, the death penalty. Well, we'll see how the jury decides on this one. I think either way, they've been tasked with a very hard job already. Um, And I think the jurors who've sat through this case in Boston, in their own hometown, watching for the last several weeks this trial unfold and listening to the testimony about all of the 
tragedy and trauma left in the wake of this man's actions. I think it's commendable what the jury's done so far, and whatever they decide, it's for the right reasons. Yeah, I, I think they have my respect for the service that they have um, provided already, regardless of the outcome of the next phase of the case. So moving on to another but different kind of murder trial. Also in Boston. Right. I didn't even realize that before. Okay. The juries over in Boston have been pretty busy. So the jury in the Aaron Hernandez case is deliberating as we speak, hopefully. Uh, they have uh, to now sift through the evidence. There were about 136 witnesses in total, and I believe only four of them were for the defense. Kind of a bomb that dropped in the closing arguments by Hernandez's defense attorney was that... Aaron Hernandez was at the scene of the crime. (laughs) It's just that he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger. He was just some poor 23-year-old kid who didn't know what to do when he saw two other people um, murder somebody else, and he didn't go to police. That's his crime, according to his defense attorney. I thought that that was either a brilliant approach because that takes off the table the opportunity for the prosecutors to try and cut a deal with the other guys if he just, the defense attorney just mentions this right as the jury goes to deliberate. Or it was a Hail Mary because the defense team realized the prosecution's done a great job of uh, lining up their case and that their only shot was to, well, no pun intended, mm-hmm. their only, uh, their best approach, the only approach that they had left was to say, yeah, he was there, but the other two guys did it. It's both brilliant and a Hail Mary. It's smart, I think, for them because this is a circumstantial case. So, yeah, they'll admit and concede that he was there, but what evidence ties him to be the one who t- pulled the trigger? And that's going to be the question the jury's going to decide. And when you mentioned all the witnesses, 136 witnesses, the fact that they needed all these witnesses to try to prove that he was the one who pulled the trigger, including his housekeepers and all these different people, it's a circumstantial case at best. Yeah, but you can still be convicted of a crime of murder with circumstantial evidence. So a lot of people like to say, oh, it's just circumstantial, it's just circumstantial. But that does not by itself preclude a conviction. And so I I think that the jury can come back with a guilty verdict. But I don't think it'll be a quick verdict. I mean, in the Sarnayev case, it was 30 counts, and they came back in a day and a half, two days. And in this case, 11 and a half hours over the two days. Uh, And in this case, I think that it will take the jury a while to sift through the evidence. And I just, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a not guilty. That doesn't mean I think he's not guilty. (laughs) But I think uh, I'm not positive that the evidence that was presented at trial is enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was the one who pulled the trigger. But I, 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 I'm, of course, I didn't sit through the testimony, but from the pieces that I've seen, that uh, one of the last witnesses was a former friend of his who saw him receive a Glock, you know, so the, that... Okay, the guy has guns. The guy's not a good guy. Get it. But that doesn't mean he's the one who shot him that night. Well, he was there. We know this for sure. There's no argument with that. We know that he owned or was in possession of a gun, the kind of which was believed to be the murder weapon. Uh, The part about this 
that kind of really pissed me off is that in his closing, the defense attorney for Aaron Hernandez said, "There, you didn't hear a motive from the prosecution because there was no motive. That's not true. The reason the prosecution didn't present motive is because the judge said he couldn't or they couldn't because the motive was that Odin Lloyd perhaps knew too much about the other murders that he had committed. And the judge said that that was too prejudicial to let in. So the prosecutors could not say that. So I think it was incredibly... uh, I don't know. Irresponsible. They're misleading the jury. Yeah, I, I, I... I wish that at that point something could have been done to either stop the defense from saying that or the prosecution would have been allowed to say in their closing, well, actually, there is a really great motive, but we're just not allowed to tell you. But they can't say that either. (laughs) There's no way they can say that. But But this can become an issue on appeal. This is If he were to be found not guilty, the state could... well, conceivably, but not really. Not double jeopardy. So well, it'll be an issue. It'll be an issue. Well, he still faces another two counts of murder in a separate incident. Uh, another trial awaits him later this year, regardless of how this one turns out. But I'm going to bet that in a year from now, we're going to be able to call him a serial murderer. Well, we'll see how the other case develops. And I think uh, if the prosecution in the other cases are smart, they're watching what happened in this one. Oh, absolutely. And they're learning lessons. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we will, of course, uh, let you know about that. That one should come in any day. I keep trying to hit refresh on my phone to make sure that the I don't know if it'll come, come in any day because, as I said, I mean, presenting this litany of witnesses from, you know, the victim's sister to the housekeepers to his friends and all these people, it connects all these little dots. But unless, you know, they're connected strong enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, then the guy's going to walk away. Okay. Well, I'm still going to say that we're going to get a guilty verdict, but maybe just barely by next Wednesday. Wow, now you're really making some bets. Okay, we have it on the record next Wednesday when we're at this show. If we have a guilty record for Hernandez, a guilty verdict for Hernandez, then Chelsea, you win the bet. A a clap on the back. Okay. (laughs) All right, moving on to another interesting um, case. Can you be served divorce papers by Facebook. Apparently, one judge in New York says yes. So this woman was trying to, for years, get a divorce from her husband, but she couldn't track him down to serve him with the documents as is required by law. Apparently, they had spoken by phone, and he would say, I don't have a permanent address. I don't have a a work address. He had never agreed to meet up with her so that they could that she could give him the the papers. So finally, she resorted to alternative service. And alternative service is legal, but it's a, a... Facebook would be a new form. So she posted on Facebook, and the judge said... She it. sent him a Facebook message. Not on the news feed, not hey, <laughs> hey world of my friends, I want to divorce my husband. It's a, it's a private message. Still still social media. <laughs> yeah, so do you think that that should be a legit way to get divorced? I think that this is going to be interesting to see if um, this is going to start to be a trend, because this isn't the first case I've heard of men, you know, totally vanishing and escaping because they want to avoid divorce and they want to avoid the cost of divorce they want to avoid you know splitting up the property and all that a friend of mine is a family law attorney and she's going through the same situation right now where they know that the guy exists because he was you know 
caught, you know, speeding in another state or something. So they know he's around, but they can't serve him. They can't get him. So this isn't an uncommon situation. So it might be a smart precedent to start. I, when I first read it, I thought, what's the world coming to? I mean, first I'm reading about revenge porn with social pe- social media prenups. Now I'm reading about divorce on social media. Um, but maybe it's the wave of the future, and maybe this social media will come to be uh, the way to serve people who are trying to evade the court system. Yeah. I don't think it's all that outlandish because we do have in our legal system uh, where notice is served through the media. Lots of different cases uh, notice is by newspaper. Well, because it used to be in the world that, you know, you could, that everyone read the newspaper and it was just your local newspaper. All I got was the Los Angeles Times paper and you open the ad and you see it. Or you open the paper and you see it. So that used to be the form. What is the form now, I guess? But I don't even check my messages. Do you check your messages on Facebook? Uh, I think that, I mean, it certainly pops up at you. It's difficult to not know that you don't have one. Well, I don't even actually have a Facebook app or get the notifications. I just go on Facebook, but, like, I never really check the messages. Sometimes people send me LinkedIn messages, and I don't check that for, like, months, and I'll be like, oh, shoot, this person sent me a LinkedIn message. Like, my email's out there enough for someone to send me an email that I don't check Facebook but, messages. But if there's evidence that there's activity on his page where he's, you know, gone on and posted something since that message, I think it's... That's notice enough. Yeah. So I'm for it. I'm for it. Okay, cool. All right. That's it for On the Docket. Well, uh, I read an interesting op-ed this weekend in the New York Times, and I thought this would make a great topic for tipping the scales this week. It was an op-ed written by a current prisoner in Attica prison and he actually um, is one of 23 men out of 2300 men who takes college courses in person live college courses at the prison but he talks about how all these other men want these want to be able to do the same all these other prisoners want to be able to do the same but they can't because there's no funding anymore for it and um you know so one of his cellmates really wants to get into the class and he can barely get into the class because there's you know hundreds of men vying for one open spot just to be educated and so he um has in my mind, I think an interesting solution. He talks about how the television is on all day, every day. You know, you're in prison. What else do you do but watch television? So why not pair up with Coursera or some sort of online, you know, college course and have one of the channels of the television be a streaming online college course that you could change the channel to and watch so you can actually learn? And that would be a an alternative to the limited spots open in the live in-person courses. And I actually think it's a good idea. And the reason I think it's a good idea is because when there used to be more funding for college courses in prisons, we would see the recidivism rate go down. Recidivism is, you know, the rate of the person being likely to reoffend and go back to jail after being released. And they found in certain prisons that had more college course offerings that those offenders were less likely to reoffend and end up back in prison. And so I think it's a great idea. Yeah, so do I. And we used to have this, you know, before funding got cut left, right, and the other. Uh, we used to have this, and now, I mean, we don't at all. Um, and I couldn't 
understand why anybody would be opposed to this. So sure enough, I read the comments to the article and one person posted, well, I'm not in prison and I have to save money. I have to invest in a 529. I got to, you know, I have to do all this money to pay for college. It's not fair that they end up in prison and get it for free and I pay for it myself and don't. Well, this is what I would have to say about that. Everyone should know, anybody that's been to college knows, it's different to watch a course online than to go be there in person, have access to a professor. To the materials. For office hours to, um, I mean, it's a, it's a different experience to see something on television versus to be at a university college taking courses. And what's the alternative? Do you want these men to watch reality television all day and then go back out, have no education, no way of getting a job? It's already so difficult for these men to get a job because they have felonies on their record, let alone the fact that they're uneducated and they don't know anything that's going on in the world. Right. So it should be, I think, that college is free to everybody. Prisoners and non-prisoners alike. Now, maybe not room and board is free to everybody, and there are certain features um, that are, are are not free. But I think the goal would be to make education available to everyone easier rather than make it virtually difficult or impossible for everyone. Well, I also think, though, it wouldn't be completely free because these streaming services like Coursera would have to agree to provide these services, but it would be a lot cheaper than hiring in-person instructors to come to the prisons right. to teach these There's courses. There's all sorts of courses. I mean, you can stream TED Talks and Yeah, you these could people. stream YouTube how-to videos. There's the Khan Academy. There's all sorts of really great um, online education. So I, I hope that it's only a matter of time before we see this implemented. I agree. I thought it was um, a very smart op-ed, and it's interesting that you read the comment section because I thought to myself, you know, it's a win-win situation. If it doesn't cost much or anything... Who could say And it'll no? help people, possibly, then why not? Um, but, you know, weigh in. I want to hear your opinion on this. Chelsea wants to hear your opinion on this, so please tweet me at Mari Fagel. And me at Chelsea Galicia. And thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, we will have a lot more to talk about next week. There were so many stories that I wanted to talk about, Chelsea. Uh, Suge Knight just decided that he's going to represent himself. He already went through three attorneys. Now he wants to represent himself. Right. And then now we have a, a case where a police officer was actually charged with murder in the killing of an unarmed black man. So there, Yet again. So, so there is a lot to talk about already. We can't wait for next week. And Robert Durst was just indicted on gun charges in New Orleans. I'm only laughing because all these news stories happened to break over the last couple hours. So uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about next week. Please do join us same time, same place next week. Thank you. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.